You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Every listener to this program knows that when General Robert E. Lee took his army north, the result was defeat for the Army of Northern Virginia at Antietam and again at Gettysburg. But not as many know about the third unsuccessful venture to the north, one that ended in October 1863 at Bristow Station. Could this obscure engagement hold the clues that explain Lee's other defeats? We'll find out today from the author of a highly underrated book, Lee Moves North, Robert E. Lee on the Offensive. The author is Michael A. Palmer, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Marissa, are you ready yet? I know you can hear me. You are not missing school again. Marissa! You trying to be a nobody or something? Let's go! All right then. Hit it. I know you can hear this. Hey guys, move closer. Girl, I am not leaving. Hey, whatever it takes, don't let your friends drop out. A real friend can make all the difference. Cut that noise, yo! I'm coming! Took you long enough. Thanks for the help, guys. For more ways to help, go to OperationGraduation.com. A public service message from the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the Civil War Talk Radio World Home Headquarters at my home office, not in the the uh, business office today at East Carolina University, and thus. Once again, as always, not speaking on behalf of East Carolina University, even when I am using the office, one of my several offices, actually. Uh, but speaking for myself, and the guest speaks for himself, although he also is connected with East Carolina, as we'll find out momentarily. But no, we're all on our own hook. Let the university fend for itself legally once again this week. Uh, in our regular announcement moment, uh, the reminder that the Did Lincoln Own Slaves World Tour continues, as I will be uh, speaking about that book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves, and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, uh, Saturday, April 5th, 2008, uh, tomorrow, if, if you're listening live. I'll be at Fort Branch, North Carolina, uh, to talk to volunteers helping clean up the park. And if you're anywhere in the United States on April 5th, go out and help clean up the nearest Civil War site. It's National uh, Park Day, they call it, for, for that kind of effort. 
continuing with the book tour on May 17th, I will be at the Bluegrass Festival of Books in Lexington, Kentucky. On June 18th at the Filson Club in Louisville, Kentucky, once again in Lincoln's native state. Uh, June 25th at the Civil War Institute in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, in July, at some date I don't even have on my calendar yet, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, talking uh, to uh, middle school teachers. But uh, if you're in the area, stop by. I'd love to say hello and talk Lincoln and Civil War with anyone who might be there. It was uh, interesting arranging these. The Bluegrass Book Festival invitation came in this week, and my publisher said, uh, we'd like to send you to this place. And they started making all kinds of flight arrangements through uh, through RDU, the Raleigh-Durham Airport. And I emailed back and said, if, if we're flying through Charlotte, might as well leave from Greenville. It's a lot easier. And they were quite surprised to find out that Greenville had an airport. So I had to send another message pointing out we also have electricity and running water and numerous modern conveniences here in Greenville at East Carolina University, as well as our very own airport. Not a great airport, but but it is an airport. Well, our guest today knows all about the thriving metropolis of Greenville. Uh, He is Professor Michael A. Palmer of East Carolina University, uh, the full-time chair of the history department, but this year the interim chair of the English department which is why I'm the acting chair of the history department in his absence. Uh, Mike, are you there? I'm here. Wonderful. Um, I, I have wanted to have you on the show for a long time, but I felt it would have been obsequious and uh, <laughs> unacceptable while you were my chair. But now that you're over in English and I'm, I'm in your office, uh, we, can, we can do this fairly. So uh, I, I have nothing to gain from it, in other words. I just want to assure you, see, we have we even have indoor plumbing over in the English department. So. Yes. It, it, well, you have a much nicer office over in the English department than uh, That's true. the history department. Uh, windows on two sides. It's really uh, uh, really a palace compared to the, the history department ghetto in, in the Brewster building. But but we manage. Um, well, I, I do appreciate, appreciate you being on the show, especially on short notice this week. Uh, we have some... Uh, very interesting guests continuing to be lined up for the remainder of this season for April and May and June. Uh, but uh, I, I, I read your book, Lee Moves North, uh, I guess last year, and I've been wanting to, to talk about it for a long time, and, and this just seemed like the good opportunity to do it. Uh, but let me ask, this is a little awkward. Usually the guests are people I don't know that well, and, and I don't know the answers to all the questions. Uh, if I ask about your background, I actually know where you went to grad school, et cetera. But uh, for the listeners, uh, t- tell us a little bit about your uh, y- your interest in the Civil War, where that came from. Well, I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, I sort of hit, uh, well, I hit my 10th birthday in 1961, just as the Civil War centennial started. So, of course, I was old enough to be aware of things. We got Life magazine. Uh, my grandfather gave me the... the uh, uh, American Heritage illustrated history of the Civil War with the maps of the little guys crawling around. I had the the Mark Civil War battle set with the you know Lee and Grant and the little cannons that fired the little plastic shells and Civil War cards. And so I, I grew up with a my my next door neighbor was in the North South Skirmish Association. He was a reenactor, Hampton's Legion of all things in Philadelphia. So I grew up with a lot of interest in the Civil War and. Uh, I went to, uh, did my graduate work at Temple University in Philadelphia with Russ Wigley, who 
always considered himself primarily a Civil War historian, although he did other things. Of course, his last book was on the Civil War before he died. Um, and I actually intended to write my dissertation on the Civil War topic until he advised me against it because there were too many Civil War historians looking for jobs, so he recommended something else. So I'd always had an interest in the Civil War, so I just didn't get to write about it until I had more time and I was a tenured associate professor and I could pretty much do what I wanted at that point. So, Well, that's a, uh, that, that's a really familiar story. You'd be just amazed how many people on this show have those same influences, yeah. uh, including you, me, and, and many others. The, the Bruce Catton, uh, American Heritage History, the, uh, the, the Marx Toy Soldiers, the... Uh, uh, the card. I didn't have the cards. Uh, another guest recently told me about the cards in England. They had the same cards, apparently. Uh, yeah, I remember we had. The... I didn't have those, but but I looked them up on the web, and uh, so you had, you did have those. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah. The uh, so uh, I mean that thread runs again through so many backgrounds of people who are on here, and then uh, uh, not all of them though. Do do as you and I didn't actually study history. A, a surprising number of people who write about the war are not historians. Yeah. Why do you suppose that is? Why why do so many of them? Why are there so many lawyers writing about the Civil War? <laughs> well, I think that for Americans, at least, the uh, you know the American Civil War is still, in many ways, the war. I mean, it's it's we're on both sides of it. You know, there aren't there's not some other group that we're you know, shellacking over there. Uh, it's each other. It's the bloodiest war in, uh, you know, in our history still. I mean, I was looking at something the other day about, the, you know, the Gulf War, and we hit the level of, of 4,000, and I thought, you know, Lincoln probably would have chuckled about that. 4,000, I mean, that was, he had days where he lost, single days where he lost more men than that. I, I forget how many was 13,000 at Antietam in one day. Uh, those are our worst losses than we suffered at D-Day or even on Iwo Jima. Uh, I mean, as bad as they were. Nothing, there's still nothing, I think, that compares just to the slaughter of, of Americans in the Civil War, especially when you consider that the casualties on both sides are they're all Americans. And I think also because it's still such an issue in terms of regionalism, race, uh, it's hard to escape coming back to the Civil War in one way or another if you're talking about problems today, even if it's executive power. Uh, you know, even if you look at things related to the the uh, war in Iraq, you know, uh, if you're talking about executive power and holding people, you know, and whether it's Guantanamo or suspending habeas corpus, it's they all seem to go back to questions about Lincoln, what he did in the Civil War, whether they're supporting what's being done or opposing what's being done. So I think it's still a central element in the story of, of the United States and the American people. And uh, and that's true, even though most people in the country today didn't even I think the figure is something like 65 75% of Americans today, whether they're white, black, brown, yellow, red, didn't even have an ancestor here during the American Civil War. My family didn't, either side. And yet it's still, you know, there's still this interest. It's still, it's still a powerful story. That's, yeah, I've, I've 
share that same lack of, of direct blood connection to the war era, but it doesn't diminish its interest in any way. What about, um, I mean, you mentioned the regionalism as, as a Philadelphian teaching in North Carolina. Do you ever run into student attitudes that are different from those you, you grew up with? Um, yeah, but but not not in the way that you might think. Not in the sense that I mean, when when Lee Moves North came out, I would say that the two best receptions to talks that I ever gave were at the Sons of Confederate Veterans uh, dinners. I was invited twice, and I, I spoke both times basically about one aspect or another of Lee, and they were they were very nice to me. I mean, I've gotten much more hostile comments from. Uh, at a conference in the north or something where I was critical of Lee. I, maybe it's because North Carolinians are uh, who know about the Civil War feel like Lee was getting them killed all the time or something. I don't know. I mean, North Carolina had the highest casualty rates of any state, but that could be it. But I, I, I've never felt down here that I was, uh, you know, I had couldn't talk about the Civil War or something with, with the people here and, uh so that, that about North Carolina is interesting. I was at a uh, conference last weekend at Chapel Hill, and uh, uh, with with our, our colleague David Long from the department, and we were uh, during the questions and answers. The seminar was attended by I'd say a couple hundred people, uh, some academics, but a lot of local people with interest in the Civil War, and a lot of the questions focused on a North Carolina angle, whether that was what the talk was about or not. And one, especially there was one talk about Lee that really, uh, I, I think what you said touches a nerve that, that to North Carolinians who, who care in that regional sense about the war, they they resent Virginia's uh, getting all the all the credit, all the glory, and 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 they feel they suffered all the casualties. Well, troops that were slaughtered at Bristow were mostly North Carolinians. They walked into a, you know into a disaster uh, at the head of, uh, I mean, uh, under the command of uh, Virginians, uh, Heath, Yule, and Lee. Well, let's work our way toward Bristol then and actually talk about this this book, Lee Moves North, which I I really, uh, which I very much enjoyed. And I thought, this is again, Mike, why we haven't done the show together, is I, I tell authors when I like their books, which, I usually don't have authors on the show if I didn't like their books. But, you know, if you were writing my annual evaluation and I'm here going, oh, I really like your book, you know, it, it would just be awkward for both of us. Um, but since we're not in a situation, we're, we're, we're okay here. Um, I have had one author on the show whose book I really did not like, uh, but uh, listeners will, will remember that and they can <laughs> go back to the files and find that show. Um, the uh, This book is very interesting because... First of all, what what I noted was it has a title, uh, Lee Moves North, that, uh, well, well, tell us where you got the title from. Uh, It's sort of the flip of Grant Moves South by Catton. Uh, It was also the title of a a war game that uh, Simulations Publications Incorporated put out in the 70s. But I I was, that was more coincidental. I was really thinking of uh, Catton's Grant Moves South, and this was, you know, Flip side, Lee moves north. It certainly works uh, in both senses. War games are another link that uh, a lot 
brought some people at least into an interest in the Civil War or, or vice versa. Uh, and we've had a few game designers on the show to, to talk about that kind of thing. Well, so Lee Moves North also encompasses not just Gettysburg, but also Antietam and, mm-hmm. as we'll talk about a little later, Bristow Station. Um, and as I gathered it, the central idea of this book is to explain how, uh, how how Robert E. Lee, Saint Robert, the great military commander, was defeated uh, so with, with such serious consequences to the Confederacy at Antietam, especially at Gettysburg, and then uh, to another degree at at Bristow Station. Um, is that a fair summary of the thesis? Yeah, I mean, my view was that Lee. Lee was a great general. I mean, I don't think you have to win the war. I mean, Napoleon lost his wars, and we still consider him a great general. So I think that Lee was a great general. Now, if you look at his campaigns, he wins, you know, for example, at uh, uh, Chancellorsville. I mean, he's outnumbered not quite three to one, two and a half to one or something like that. He wins, you know, a tremendous victory. At Gettysburg, he's relatively speaking fighting at roughly even, you know, 90,000 to 70,000. I mean, he's not even outnumbered two to one, and yet he suffers a, a terrible defeat. So what I was trying to figure out was why. What's the difference between why can he win at Chancellorsville and, and lose at um, Gettysburg? And also I, I tend more as a military historian to think in terms of campaigns than specific battles. And what struck me was, having actually started with the Bristow campaign, was that there there seemed to be recurring patterns in all three of those campaigns, Maryland, Gettysburg, Bristow. And they're really the only three that Lee loses until the final campaign in 1865, which, you know, no, no one could have won. Uh, no, I was just about to say Malvern Hill, but, that, but he really wins that campaign. He yeah, wins the campaign. I mean, he does throw... Uh, the Union out of the peninsula, and then you know all but destroys Pope on the, on his march toward the Potomac. Uh, you know, as far as his campaign goals, he's all you know not a hundred percent successful because he actually hoped to destroy Pope's army, and he hoped uh, to destroy McClellan's army. He doesn't manage to do that, but in retrospect, that's that those were you know goals that he was not likely to achieve. It's awfully hard to destroy an enemy army in the field in an afternoon. It's fine to try to do it, maybe, but you know, you're not going to do it all that often, especially as you... It, it just doesn't happen. Well, it, just, yeah, it doesn't happen in the Civil War. I, I guess you'd say Hood at Nashville would be the yeah. exception to that, but even there... It's, it's even in the Napoleonic Wars, the, it's still the exception to the rule. It's very rare to see an army... You may see a campaign decided in a single battle, but you don't... You rarely see an army totally destroyed, other than maybe the Prussian army at Yena, the Yena campaign. Uh, but your, but your mentor, Russ Wigley, wrote uh, The Age of Battles, mm-hmm. where he talks about that. And I recall reading that in graduate school, and it's just an, almost an endless catalog of, of Napoleonic battles and, and 18th century battles that are not decisive. Yeah. And I, I have to say, it, it was, I would, I hate to use the word tedious, but but he made his point very effectively because none of these battles destroyed the army in the field except Waterloo, and yet Waterloo became the the paradigm. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to do, and uh, but I mean, in other ways, Lee's campaigns nevertheless were successful. But 
the, the, the comedy nominators I saw in the three, they were Lee's only strategic offensive. That's when he went from a position of sort of stasis in the theater to attacking. He, whereas when he's on the defensive, he wins. When he's on the strategic defensive and is able to, you know, uh, counterattack, he's able to foil the Federals and defeat them. But in the three campaigns where they're both sort of uh, static, and he goes over to the offensive on his own, he ends up losing. So, and that seemed to be the common denominator. So then, what I wanted to do was to look through those three campaigns and see within each of those are there common themes that explain why he didn't fare as well in those campaigns, whereas in other campaigns he's, you know, remarkably successful. And there are there are links between the three where you see the same things happening. Well, this is a good place for us to take a break. Uh, we'll, okay. we'll take a short intermission here, and we'll find out what those things were. We'll be back in just a moment with our guest, Mike Palmer, author of Lee Moves North on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 